0: You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds from Stokes Family Office.
1: Stokes Family Office Lanyap Podcast. This is Greg Stokes with Doug, my brother and partner. Today is April 4th, 2023, Um, been a wild week. Last week closed the quarter. On the quarter, the S&P 500 was up 7% um, through a lot of obvious uh, tumultuous times, bank failures, et cetera. Um, But here we are, start to the new quarter, um, starting to get hot down here in New Orleans. um, And we are approaching summer, even though summer doesn't technically begin for about two and a half months. So, Doug, what's your take on everything? And uh, where do you want to take the podcast today? Um, I think that... The first take is
2: that how on earth can you have a positive 7% quarter after all the craziness um, that we had last quarter? But that's the nature of markets that like trying to take one data point and saying, oh, you know, bank failure must be bearish and then all of a sudden you get whipsawed around. It just reminds me of COVID where we're in like the first week of lockdown and markets bottomed. It's like you can't take any sort of uh, like – fearfulness of current events and extrapolate that towards, uh, investment decisions. You have to have a full portfolio approach because you can get just whipsawed, um, to the positive just by thinking, you know, if you're over bearish, if the market's over bearish and you have too many people short and they have to, you know, cover their shorts and, uh, and push the market higher then you, you miss out on that, and um, that rebound. And so, I just find it crazy that markets finished up 7% with all the negativity that occurred throughout the quarter. I think the one positive was that inflation just continued to come down and I know we had a blip there in in February with a hotter than expected inflation number, but you just continue to see the, these disinflationary forces and I think that that's continue going to continue especially with the uh, pullback in and, and uh, you know credit offered by some of these regional banks just to you know, shore up their particular balance sheets. I think the uh, you know if you look at data on a go forward basis, um, Ryan Dietrich, who's a uh, he's on the investment re- investment research team at Carson Group, uh, put something together. I thought it was really uh, interesting. He looked at every quarter throughout history, first quarter of the year in which markets were up seven percent or higher there's been around 15 of those since 1954. So it's not like it's uh, I mean, I would, I would say it's, um, rare, but not too rare. Uh, the, the most important piece of this in every quarter that the market has been up 7% or higher, it has gone to finish the year positive. Um, so for those uh, of us that are hesitant about where the economy is going, that we're knocking on the door of a a slowdown in a recessionary environment. It would be counter trend to say that uh, things are going to be down from here. The median return over those prior periods was 24.7% annualized uh, return for the S&P 500 in in those years where the first quarter was up 7% or greater. Now, that's probably going to be Deemed data mining, and you know you're we're cherry picking data. But um, if you're just following, if you're just following the trends, you would say uh, things are positive here on out. If you're not, you're not looking at what's going on in the headlines, right?
1: And what you see in the headlines is a lot of negativity. Um, over the weekend, the basically uh, not the entire OPEC group, but some cons- major constituents of the OPEC group, like Saudi Arabia, et cetera announced a uh, pretty significant uh, reduction in their oil output. It was like, like over a million barrels of oil, um, which is like a little bit more than 1% of the, the daily global output. And so what ended up happening in um, oil prices is they went up like 6 or 7% on Monday, surprised the whole market, et cetera. Um, more recently, the as far as negative headlines as well too, a lot of these same nations um, look like they're sort of conniving to, to oust the US from its superpower position from an economic standpoint and military standpoint. The um, chairman of China, Xi, went to Russia and uh, had a powwow with Putin. And then um, Saudi Arabia and China look like they're basically brokering an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran to reestablish diplomatic relations. All these things um, basically point to negativity on the whole from from a media cycle standpoint. Uh, Russia uh, arrested a Wall Street Journal journalist for the first time in like 40 years. So lots of negativity going on. And uh, we've been hearing for a really long time, but a lot more recently about the potential for um, the US dollar to, to lose its status as the global reserve currency. Doug, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that specific negative headline. There was a recent a recent transaction that uh, I don't even know what the what the good or service was, but it was a major transaction that was settled in the Chinese yuan. It was oil. So, what was it, Doug?
2: It was an oil uh,
1: export from Saudi to to China. Okay, so tell me what you think about that sort of assertion that the U.S. dollar, which is if you really if you go anywhere it's it's sort of this like like i'd mentioned like the global reserve tell me what you think about that and what is what does the data actually say related to the us dollar lo- losing its uh, status as reserve currency i
2: feel like we were talking about this like 18 months ago when bitcoin was at 69000 and all of those guys on twitter with laser eyes were calling for bitcoin to be the new <laughs> global reserve currency it's like this it, this is like a just these cycles rhyme, um, and so this is this, the latest attempt of uh, sort of a media hysteria around uh, U.S. dollar being destabilized. And uh, if you actually look just at the data, there's there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Um, Colin Roche, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, just uh, asked the question: Is the U.S. dollar lo- losing reserve status? Here's the relative allocated reserves by major currency over the last 10 years. Ten years ago, uh, 2012, uh, the US dollar had 61% share, around 61% share of uh, global, global foreign exchange reserves. It's now down to 58%, so a three percentage point decline over a decade. Uh, over that same time frame, euro has gone from about 25% to 20%. And then no other global currency is above 5%. And so um, short answer to that question is there are there have other currencies that have come up over the last decade, but the US is th- uh, three times larger than the next nearest competitor, which is the euro. And And would you bet on the euro or the US dollar on a go forward basis with everything going on and all
1: the dysfunction in Europe? So. Um, I right, and how think can you how is, could you ever trust the Chinese yuan as a currency or dealing with the Chinese in general? They're notorious yeah, they have a closed capital accounts. So one, that's what one what people don't re- realize is that there's two currencies
2: in China. One is what's called the renminbi, which is what they transact in internally within China, and the other is the yuan, which uh, is the currency that's settled for uh, exchange with. Uh, with international, uh, other countries. And so on the international exchange, and so they, they don't even have an open book. Um, and so, you know, why would, why would anyone other than nefarious actors that are really just trying to destabilize the U S, um, try to switch a settlement into Chinese to Yuan? it's just, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. The other thing I think is interesting is just the dollar itself, uh, compared to other, uh, other currencies since 2013. The dollar from a relative strength standpoint, so this is, of course, there's been inflation, but um, but there's been worse inflation outside of the US, and so the dollar has gained around 30% against other currencies, and so this is what Cullen says. Uh, doll, dollar index tells the same story. It's not necessarily the dollar is so great. It's just that every other fiat currency is worse. Um, so. Again, are we going back to the gold standard? No, in my opinion. Are we going to the Bitcoin standard? No. Um, of course, this is all my opinion, so as our, as Charlie goes through this and suggests edits, just please note, Charlie, that this is all opinion, um, so uh, don't come back at me later. And, uh, and then, is the US dollar going to be replaced by another global currency? Uh, if you look at the data, it's just there's just no likelihood of that, in my opinion, happening anytime soon.
1: You know, as you were mentioning the uh, laser eye situation, you're exactly right. So that was the, that was sort of the the the, uh, the call of the the Bitcoin guys, basically that that they would supplant the U.S. dollar as reserve currency, and now here we are today. Um, I, I wonder. I haven't seen a whole lot of Bitcoin laser eyes. On any uh, celebrities or football players recently, have you? I
2: think <laughs> they—they seem to be coming back a little bit because Bitcoin's up like sixty-five percent year to date. So all the guys that are uh, that were like hiding under the uh, you know under the sheets last year are now you know poking their head out. So uh, we'll see what happens. I also find that really interesting that Bitcoin's really roared back in, in the face of all of this. Uh, negative headlines, but it's just a levered play to Nasdaq. It, and that's, that's, growth. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's all. It looks like it's all interest rate driven, right? Either interest rate or just like sentiment driven. I mean, or if risk have on the, sentiment. Yeah, yeah. Right. You have the Nasdaq that's up twenty percent or whatever the number is. Not Nasdaq, but like some certain components of growth that are up twenty percent. Those interest rate sensitive, bullish sentiment type stocks that really were the the COVID darlings, and really the darlings before COVID, um, when Fang and everything was uh, in its heyday, uh, Bitcoin just seems to be trading alongside those, and, and just to a higher degree. So maybe those people that are super bullish on growth coming back would be
1: uh, the people that'd be placing dollars in, uh, in crypto. Yeah, so it's still the risk on sentiment may be prevalent right now, as in what you just referenced related to Bitcoin. The fact that some of these sort of COVID, uh, for lack of a better word, crappy companies uh, with the trade at huge uh, multiples to their revenues are way up, et cetera. So, there's, there seems to be some risk on sentiment going on right now. Um, but the underlying, there's still some some turbulence underlying in the, uh, in the economy. And, and some I saw some interesting headlines well, uh, you, know, the, to- you know what the
2: most risk on trade is right now that everybody's jumping on is AI. Right. It's, it's like exactly. everything dot AI is just bumping right now. It's just, that's, so this is just, uh, there's this last gasp of all of the uh, the super growth venture bros um, that, uh, you know, they missed on crypto and they missed on SaaS, software as a service and you know, 100 and 200 times revenue companies that we saw in in COVID, and uh, now the the last ditch effort is AI, which I'm I'm certain is going to be a game changing technology, and people are going to make a ton of money. But there's a difference between um, you know the economic benefit and hype, and then actual uh, you know investment returns. And so what happens is, and we saw this. Over the last several years is that the hype sort of takes over and you know people bid this stuff up and say that this is game-changing technology and it's going to change our lives in the future and the price of these assets just goes to the moon and then all of a sudden people realize wait i can't really make any money on an investment if i'm trading it, if i'm buying it at 150 or 200 times revenue i mean what does this company have to do for me to actually get some sort of investment results um that Came back down to earth in a real strong way last year in in the uh, growth area of the market,
1: um, but it looks like AI is trying to uh, you know, rev that engine back up. The same things happen over and over again in history. Like when we had Jamie Catherwood on our podcast, he talked about that when bicycles were invented in like the like late eighteen. I don't know if they were invented or but be, they became popular in the late eighteen hundreds. There was like something like a hundred plus IPOs of bicycle companies. The same thing happened with breweries in England in the 1800s, 1700s. Same thing happened with railroads in the United States in the mid-1800s. These new ideas get adopted. The the crowd basically sees these new ideas and and there's a sort of a speculative mania that builds up. Um, I saw, I don't even remember the name, which company it was, but it was a, a blog company that basically said they were adopting AI and their stock price was up. You know multiples, yeah. uh, yeah, Remember, back. like, uh, I remember
2: what was it? Um, Long Island Ice Tea did a uh, they were like blockchain, they went, they they changed <laughs> their <laughs> the exact same thing, <laughs> yeah. It's like you just that's like the, the, one way to spot a scam is when they when a public
1: company changes their name to the fad of the day, right? It's like the dot com stuff as well, too. It's right. and it's all the same, it's all, and you know what, there may be one or two that survives, but. You know, the the vast majority of those are probably probably uh, not going to make it. Is my my guess, if history is any guide, how many of these bi- publicly traded bi- bicycle bicycle companies are still out there? Yeah. So um, so in terms of
2: uh, one thing I want to talk about is, and, and we mentioned this. I don't know if this was on our last podcast or the one before. Is uh, I was I was making the case or the hope that the Federal Reserve would. Uh, pause rate hikes and, and basically say, look, the banks are going to do this for us because um, of the scare of Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate and Signature and, and now First Republic or you know, Credit Suisse or others that are really coming to light with uh, some real stresses. Um, and so you, you found really good research on what really actually happens when uh, the Federal Reserve stops its rate hiking cycle. And so it may... Um, you know, that's what the market is hoping for right now. But is that really even a good hope?
1: So, I, this this particular chart from Jury and Timmer made me think of a quote from Anchorman. It's a sixty percent of the time it works every time. Right. <laughs> so no, but in, but really, if it, what happens, there's a broad range of outcomes, as you would imagine, once the Fed's last tightening occurs. Um, and yeah, There's a reason why they stop. There's a reason why they they stop because. The, there's, the, there's basically indications that the warning lights are going off in the economy that there's a recession imminent, or they've caused a recession, and they definitely don't want to be making monetary conditions tighter into a recession or into a or financial instability. So, the, this particular scatter plot that Jury and Tim are prepared, who's uh, the chief economist of Fidelity Investments, where we custodialize the most of our clients' assets. Um, basically shows that the, the returns can vary from positive from the last uh, Fed tightening cycle from positive 70% to negative 60% over the course of about a year. The majority of those, the, the average returns over, the, over the, that period of time uh, have been positive um, over the next, it's, this is about, a, I think it's a three-year chart. Um, yeah. But basically, on average, it's three years out. Um, it's about a, like a, I'm looking, these are these are cumulative returns, so it's probably like a 10% annualized return on average, but they can range from very good to very bad. Obviously, nobody knows. And, and like you said, the Fed would not be, would not stop tightening unless they thought things, the job was done as what Jay J- Powell has been um, so adamant about over the last,
2: the um, yeah, one thing the one thing I get from this is that the range of outcomes widens dramatically once the Fed the, the tightening cycle ends. It looks, I mean, if you look at this chart, and we'll post it in our show notes. But essentially, what's happening, and I think 2022 is an exception to this rule. But what's happening for the three years preceding the Fed pause? So let's say the, let's say the Fed goes into a, high, a rate hiking cycle, and it takes a couple of years to actually get to its peak on average, markets increase into that uh, hiking cycle. And actually, we talked about that last year. I think Ken Fisher posted some data on that. It was one of our early podcasts when we were not really good at this, uh, but uh, we were quoting a lot of Ken Fisher at the time. And um, and one of his was uh, that the market increases uh, on average during a, a rate hiking cycle. And so just because you go into a rate hiking cycle, you shouldn't be too fearful of the downside effects of that, um, which had been the case. I mean, that on average, markets increase into a, a rate hiking cycle. But as soon as the pause occurs, it's like a complete like, spray and pray on a return perspective. Like you said, positive 70% to negative 50% on the range of outcomes going forward. And I think the rationale there is that the reason the Fed uh, paused is because things are starting to break in the economy. Cracks are starting to show. And we're seeing that this last month with, um, with, uh, Silicon Valley bank being the poster child of this sort of bank run issue that we're dealing with currently. And so, um, so I would say, you know, the market itself is, is hopeful for a pause. But if you look at actual, the actual data, it's like anyone's guess where markets go after this occurs. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what ha- I would assume that they're not going to make any more rate, in- rate uh, increases going forward. And so um, it should be a, a, a wild and interesting rest of
1: 2023. Speaking of Silicon Valley Bank. This is now since this happened like three or four weeks ago or whatever. Um, now that the now that the, that particular issue is behind us, some of the news and inside information related to what actually went on at these banks is coming out. This is a quote from the the Washington Post, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting about some risk management uh, internally at Silicon Valley Bank, and I quote. In buying long-term investments that paid more interest, Silicon Valley had fallen out of compliance with a key risk metric. An internal model showed that higher interest rates could have a devastating impact on the bank's future earnings, according to two former employees familiar with the modeling uh, and so on. And then it continues, instead of heeding that warning, Silicon Valley banks simply changed the model's assumptions. The tweaks... They, and it goes on predicted that the rising interest rates would have minimal impact <laughs> it's i mean that it sounds like like that probably happens all over the place
2: with uh you know just fudging the numbers to make sure that it fits your uh <laughs> your framework um right so let me, let me, let, a, me tw- let me tweak this model like okay we're all good right it's it's almost like a uh like underwriting on a real estate deal or something like that, where it's like, Hey, why don't we change that cap rate to, um, you know, 4% instead of 5% so we can show a, a really good outcome, even though we have no intention of actually achieving our results. We just want to show our, uh, the people who are presenting this some, something positive. Uh, so that's, uh, that's just crazy. And yeah, I mean, I think that it's, as these hearings come out, um, I'll be interested to see what if there's any clawbacks or whatever from um, executives at these at these banks. But it's uh, it's crazy that uh, I think Warren Buffett said that as when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. It sounds Silicon Valley Bank was the you know another poster child of that.
1: Absolutely. So as it stands right now, that the, the uh, U.S. markets are trading about one of one a, on a forward's earnings basis, they're trading at about. A sixteen, or the trading at seventeen times earnings on a forward basis. The twenty-five year average is about seventeen times on a forward basis. Um, last year, interestingly enough, the European markets, MSCI EFA, actually outperformed the U.S. markets, and that was the first time in fourteen years that the um, international markets had outperformed the U.S. markets. This, this particular chart from J.P. Morgan from their quarterly um, guide to the markets is really interesting and shows just how much the U.S. markets had demolished the foreign markets over, it goes back to the early 70s, but it's just, it's crazy to me. Um, this sort of, the last, basically the, the, this most recent period encompassed our entire careers in this business. Um, so I want to get your thoughts on that. There was actually an interesting discussion that I forwarded to you earlier today from um, Lawrence Hamtill about well, if you look at the underlying apples to apples comparisons of the fundamentals of some of these same type of companies and uh, the European markets to their US peers. So I just want to hear your thoughts on this whole divergence in performance and if you look at the what, what, what actually constitutes the difference between these uh, European and international companies and, and their US peers. Yeah, I think um, ever since we got into the business, we we had
2: been um, fed through research the idea that there would be some reversion back to international or you know outside the U.S. outperformance versus U.S. domiciled companies, and because that had been the case. I mean, if you look at and this chart by J.P. Morgan is actually a great one. If you look at the History of returns against the U.S. and international markets. It basically it goes in cycles of, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of like let's call it five years on average. You have five years of outperformance by U.S. markets, followed by five years of outperformance by international markets, followed by five years of outperformance of U.S. markets. And so, um, you know, in the early 2010s, the U.S. markets had been outperforming for three or four years. At that point, uh, it it was at least evident from history that there would be some reversion back to an international performance. Well, that never really uh, materialized at all. And so uh, Lawrence Hamtel, I think, was really the, the pioneer in this. Uh, we started reading him six or seven years ago, but, but essentially what he said was, well, stop thinking about it from the perspective of US versus international and start thinking about it from the perspective of sector breakdown. Meaning, U.S. Com- U.S. markets are heavily weighted towards technology. Uh, the top five companies in the U.S. markets, at least at the time, were, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, etc. Uh, and so, of course, when you have a big growth move, a a country that has mostly growth uh, is going to outperform you know, countries that are. Banking related or industrial related, and so what he did is okay. Let's take, let's break this down and make it sector neutral, and say, okay, what if we normalize uh, U.S. international markets by um, just the an equal weighted across all sectors, and let's look at their valuations, and can we gain any insight from differences in valuation across U.S. and international companies? And it really turns out that. No, you can't. The only reason that you should have international diversification is because you want to have sector diversification. So if you're owning the S&P 500 and you're owning the MSCI XUS, the reason you're doing that is because you don't want to put all your eggs in a growth basket by owning the S&P that is, that's – Very technology based. You have some banking, you have some old world economy type stuff in there, materials, industrials, et cetera. And so, if there's going to be a shift from US to international, it really is going to be a shift from growth to value, um, from technology to industrials. And we saw that last year. We saw growth really, and NASDAQ was down 35% or something like that uh, when the general market was down 20% and value was down 10. You know, The Dow was down, I think, less than 10 during 2022. And so I think that, that if, if you see that change in leadership, uh, where international markets really carry the day, um, I think you can get that sort of return in the US
1: if you just tilt towards more of a value-oriented portfolio opposite to growth. I couldn't have said it better myself. So I want to close with one particular thought. And we've talked about this In detail, in terms of, you know, we obviously were this last 16, 18 months has been pretty heavy heavy on the inflationary front. We talk about secular changes, secular sort of, I guess, headwinds that would basically make inflation or basically mitigate inflation. And I I thought about that, and, and we've talked about specifically an aging population, technological changes that make the production of goods and services more efficient, et cetera, which should, which should just inherently bring costs down. As it relates to the demographic changes, I found this chart that Charlie Valillo posted very informative. Um, this is the percentage of Americans 65 and older. In 1950, was 8%, and it slowly ticked up like basically a couple percent every decade. And uh, right now, it's 17%. And it's really accelerating. In twenty thirty, it's projected to be twenty one percent, and then it's going to sort of moderate after that point in time. But just inherently, that would um, hopefully mitigate inflation over the long term, um, as you've seen in a lot of other uh, pop- uh, countries where the populations are older, like Japan, for example. Um, so I want to get your thoughts on that, and um, and if you think that that's that's sort of. Um, prognostication uh, holds any weight. Yeah, I think um, aging population
2: really, and a lack of spending, lack of borrowing uh, by the elderly population is is going to limit economic growth long term. Uh, and then inflation's tied to to growth, uh, at least you hope it is, unless you have a major stagflationary type environment like you had in the 70s. But Uh, I would say that those, those demographics are going to be disinflationary and I also think there's investment opportunity there. I mean, how do you, what, you know, goods and services, um, are going to be provided to that aging population in the future. And we're thinking about that a lot, uh, currently, you know, what strategies can we employ, uh, where there's going to be demand amongst that aging boomer population. Soft foods. (laughs) yeah, Yeah. Um, infomercials, right. <laughs> and, but, uh, but yeah, so I think, uh, there's, there's going, there's a disinflationary benefit to productivity growth, to technology growth, to, uh, demographic trends. And there's also investment opportunity with, uh, the, those populations and, you know, whether it's, uh, medical, you know, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, um, you know, skilled nursing homes, things like that. Uh, that's something we're thinking about deeply right now.
1: Right, and and on top of that, the on a on a bigger from a bigger perspective, bigger picture perspective, the government's got to think about a lot of things too, like Medicare and Social Security, et cetera. The way that they're set up right now is not really um, tenable over the long term, especially given the fact that we have an aging population, and the aging population is living longer than than um, they have in the past as well too. Um, so it, it really presents an interesting um, investment opportunity along with. Um, some interesting questions that the government's going to have to confront um, over the next five, 10 years, et cetera. So anyway, guys, we really appreciated uh, you joining us today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our discussion. Um, our podcast listenership is actually going up um, Yeah, we're significantly. We kicking ass. Yeah. yeah, so we're kicking ass. We appreciate you guys joining and we want to continue to spread the word. Um, so if you like this, give it five stars and share it with your friends and family. And we'll see you guys next week. We hope you have a nice holiday weekend.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, Visit us at StokesFamilyOffice.com.